This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Hello again, everybody. This is Peter Jennings in New York, and you were looking at the scene under a very cloudy and occasionally drizzly rainy day here in New York City. Uh, This is uh, intended to be uh, in New York and in Washington today, a national day of prayer and remembrance, which means, of course... Just three days after 9-11, on a day when the nation was mourning the victims of those attacks, Congress passed a joint resolution of enormous gravity. In just 60 words... Representatives gave to the president the power to use all necessary and appropriate force against whoever had perpetrated or aided the attack. And not only that, he could also use military force to prevent future attacks of international terrorism. The president could now make war without having to go back to Congress, which is what the Constitution had always demanded. The resolution was called the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, or AUMF. And it eventually brought our country to war with Iraq and was used to deploy American forces all over the world. The vote for AUMF in 2001 was unanimous, almost. In the entire House and the entire Senate, there was just one representative who voted no, Barbara Lee of California. What do you remember about that day? Describe the lead up to the vote and the reaction you got. I always remember standing with Elijah Cummings in the uh, cloakroom in the back of the House chamber, uh, talking to Elijah, telling him how um, sad and how angry I was because of what had taken place, but how I knew that uh, we had to uh, uh, respond appropriately. I, like everyone else in the country, were very uh, sad and in really grieving and um, thinking about Flight 93 because I was sitting in the Capitol and had to evacuate that morning. And my chief of staff's uh, cousin, Wanda Green, was a flight attendant on that flight. And she, of course, as they took down that plane, which probably saved our lives, my life, um, she was killed. And so it was a very emotional moment for myself. But I had to... I didn't um, know that. I'm sorry to hear that. I didn't know that. 
yeah, yeah. So we were personally uh, impacted by what had taken place. And Wanda was on that flight and I was in the Capitol. And, you know, as, as history shows, night, Flight 93 was probably coming into the Capitol and Wanda and the flight attendants took that plane down. Mm. Uh, we had to uh, uh, respond appropriately but um, this authorization that had been presented was only a 60-word authorization, which really was a blank check to give over congressional authority to any president to wage war. And I went to the memorial. And remember, I was the last person getting on the bus. It was a very gloomy, rainy day. The dean of the National Cathedral gave his eulogy and his sermon. He said in it, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. It was at that moment I wrote that down on the program. And when we got back to the Capitol, then it was at that moment I was very settled about my no vote. Mr. Speaker, members, I rise today really with a very heavy heart. One that is filled with sorrow for the families and the loved ones who were killed and injured this week. Only the most foolish and the most callous would not understand the grief that has really gripped our people and millions across the world. This unspeakable act on the United States has really forced me, however, to rely on my moral compass, my conscience, and my God for direction. September 11th changed the world. Our deepest fears now haunt us. Yet I am convinced that military action will not prevent further acts of international terrorism against the United States. This is a very complex and complicated matter. However difficult this vote may be, some of us must urge the use of restraint. Some of us must say, let's step back for a moment, let's just pause just for a minute and think through the implications of our actions today so that this does not spiral out of control. Now, fast forward to Iraq which was the next year that once again, uh, President Bush um, wanted to use force. Embedded in the, that uh, Iraq authorization was the 9-11 authorization too. So they used that as the basis to um, invade Iraq. Thousands of our troops, brave men and women uh, were killed, uh, lifelong, some have lifelong injuries, uh, hundreds of thousands of Iraqi refugees, thousands of Iraqis killed, over a trillion dollars misspent. It, it was a, a terrible, terrible moment in the history of this country. And that opened the door for ISIS and all of the other terrorist activities that we see all around the world now, including on the continent of Africa. That's Barbara Lee talking with me about the authorization for the use of military force, the first of such measures, which took place in 2001. Congress passed another AUMF in 2002. And now over 20 years later, Officials in both houses are pushing to repeal it. The mood in the country has changed tremendously, and yet the timing here is worth looking at closely. A bill in the Senate to revoke AUMF passed 66 to 30 a few weeks ago, and that effort was led by Tim Kaine, a Virginia Democrat, and Todd Young, a Republican from Indiana. I spoke with them both last week. Senator Kaine, it's probably worth remembering that in 2001... Barbara Lee said, I don't think the president should have the authority to wage war. And for many members of Congress 
And in the commentariat, I should also say, that put her patriotism in question. What does it say that that is no longer the case? You know, look, if you can't learn some lessons after 20 years of war, shame on you, you know. I, I think that the 20 years of, of the war on terror and the war in Iraq, the repeated deployments, you know, when, when have we had a war where people deployed six or seven times? That, that, that wasn't in World War II. You know, that wasn't in Korea. Vietnam, there were multiple deployments, but not six or seven deployments. You, you do six or seven deployments. What's your test case for what that means in the afterlife of somebody who served? What does that mean for the VA? What does that mean for divorce rates? What does it mean for a million things? And so I think, the, um, I think we, we have learned some lessons. Let's also give Iraq credit. I mean, Iraq was an enemy. Uh, we toppled that government. Um, we then departed Iraq, I think, in 2011, but then they asked us back in 2014 to help them defeat ISIS. And we are there at their continued invitation, both to deal with ISIS and also to help them check Iranian aggression. We, we've beaten the sword into a plowshare. A, na- a, a, a nation that was an enemy is now a partner. And we have to give credit to the magnanimity of Iraqis as well. For well, but with a great, to be great deal of bloodshed in between. Absolutely. As look, we, we the blood, the, but but there is this thing in our history where there, the bloodshed of World War II, Japan and Germany are strong allies now. The bloodshed of the Vietnam War, Vietnam is getting closer and closer in our relationship. And if we send a message in, like repealing the Iraq AUMF, this nation that was an enemy. We're now strategic partners. Then anybody who's an enemy of the United States can look at that and say, hmm, the U.S. doesn't have permanent enemies. The U.S. is always going to try to figure out a way to turn, you know, an enemy into a into a partner. And it's hard and it takes time and I, I may just, or may not happen. But I think that's an important part of this. Senator, you, you don't see that as a fairly sunny reading of the Iraq War? Well, look, I do. I do. It's a reality. There's 4,500 American troops were killed. Tens of thousands of Americans were injured. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis were killed. That's what haunts me about about this. We did the 2002. The decision was made in three days, and it was rushed. And look what happened. Look at the human consequence of that. And yet. Um, that's all a reality, and I'm haunted by it, that if, if the time had been taken, we might have avoided that and avoided a lot of other challenges. And yet at the same time, I do think you have to acknowledge that the U.S. is working uh, and Iraq is working to make a relationship that is a positive one. And in that positive relationship, maintaining a war authorization against Iraq is offensive, frankly insulting. And dangerous, right? I mean, yeah. these, are, these are authorizations still on the book that could conceivably be used by uh, a future commander-in-chief uh, to to re-engage us uh, in, in uh, various areas around the world. So um, we, we just can't allow that to stand. Senator Young, was there a road to Damascus moment for you on this? What changed between <laughs> 9-11 and 2023 that made you feel that now there's a turning point and the AUMF, second one, had outlived its use? Um, for me, you know, this really began when I served in the military. I, I attended the U.S. Naval Academy and spent five years in the U.S. Marine Corps. And, and uh, though many 
um, uh, smart people serve at the highest ranks in our in our military, you, you do get some insight into uh, your leadership and recognize that they are fallible like anyone else. And uh, so that was part of it uh, that shaped my perspective as, as I followed issues like mm-hmm. uh, a- engagement in, in the Iraq war. Then over a period of time, it became clear to me that uh, it, as, as uh, Tim indicated, that that uh, this was a conflict we, we rushed into ill-advisedly. And I, I don't want to be I, I want to be critical, but but not too critical of, of, of members who served during that time and, and uh, who authorized uh, the force uh, in the wake of 9-11 and all the rest. But um, <clears throat> it was pretty clear to me and frankly, uh, clear to my constituents, clear to my neighbors that uh, we had uh, we'd, we'd made a mistake and uh, it, it cost so many lives. Uh, it, it cost us treasure. And uh, we just can't afford, especially in an era of strategic competition with China. We, we, we can't afford to make another mistake like this. And the American people need to be able to hold accountable those of us who are charged uh, on their behalf with making these decisions. So it was it was a gradual process for me. Now, Senator Young, you've both emphasized the bipartisan nature of this bill, but most of your Republican colleagues in the Senate are are not necessarily with you. There are 49 Republicans in the Senate. 30 of them voted no and want to preserve the AUMF, as we were discussing. Even if you disagree with them, what's the sticking point for them? What are the politics within the Republican caucus, and what do you expect to see going forward? So almost without exception. Uh, the, the, the stated objectives from some of my colleagues, and it's a principled objection, uh, is, is that this could, uh, by repealing the, the O2 Iraq Authority, somehow create an impression uh, that the United States is withdrawing from the region. Uh, as Tim and I... From have, the Middle have, East. Have, from the Middle East, yeah. uh, from Iraq in particular. And, and, and uh, as we have repeatedly reminded our colleagues... Iran right now is engaged in misinformation campaigns uh, against the sitting uh, Iraqi government, which was just formed in, in January. Uh, we think and we believe, and, and uh, uh, this belief is shared by the sitting Iraqi government, that by repealing the 2002 AOMF, we send a message of solidarity uh, with the people of Iraq and their government. And this demonstrates strength so that we can work together uh, against threats uh, to their peace and security posed by Iran and others. Senator Kane, we're now in a, in a moment when a, there is a ground war taking place in Europe, the biggest ground war since the Second World War. Right, yeah. And unless I'm wrong, it seems to me that the politics of that war in Congress are in question, that the longer this war goes on, there's concern, um, certainly in Kiev, <laughs> that congressional support for that war will, will recede, that there, there will be an exhaustion among the American people, that the 2024 election will bring Ukraine into the, into the debate. You've, you've seen uh, for example, uh, Governor DeSantis going back and forth, uh, trying to find some sort of firm ground for himself on the, on the war in Ukraine. How much does the politics of Ukraine have to do with what's going on now with AUMF and how might it influence the future? 
I still believe that as a member of both Armed Services and Foreign Relations in the Senate, that there is a strong bipartisan and bicameral support in Congress for investing and supporting Ukraine until they win this very, very important um, battle, um, you know, started without any provocation. I think that the bipartisan support for Ukraine is very strong. I agree. There's there's two kinds of objection. It's it's strong, not unanimous. So there are folks here who, some for reasons of, you know, fiscal reasons and some because they don't view this, you know, Ukraine necessarily as a core interest of the U.S. There's a small group of people who are who are not completely supportive and then there's a second group that are raising legitimate questions are we investing the right way are we overseeing how the money is used to make sure it's really going to do what's intended and all those questions are legitimate i mean we have to ask those questions but i do think that it is still bipartisan bicameral strong support and that's going to last through the election cycle and and beyond the consequences of russia being able to do this without consequence are just too grave around the world and i don't it it, it was interesting um, as we were having the florida debate about the repeal of O2AUMF, we had the bill on the floor for two weeks. It was, you know, four times longer than the declaration of war against Iraq. We had a lot of amendments. And there was opportunity for people to offer amendments dealing with Ukraine, but folks didn't. Um, They offered uh, amendments about Iran or Iran-backed militias. But uh, the members of the Senate kind of kept Ukraine separate from this, and they understood that it is separate. And I think you're, you're going to see the same thing on the House side, probably on the House side as they take take up our AUMF repeal. There's a good bipartisan group of supporters there. There will probably be some discussions about Iran-related issues, but I don't think the Ukraine politics is going to kind of get into this and, and, you know, knock it sideways. Senator Young, a final question, and it is striking the, the sense of bipartisanship, not only between the two of you, but in large measure in the Senate. But if Donald Trump were president now, what would the Republican support for this be? How deep does this bipartisanship go? You know, I, I, I think most of those in the Senate uh, who supported the 2002 repeal would continue uh, to support its repeal. Let's remember that President Trump campaigned on trying to end the forever wars. And, uh, you know, I will say, uh, whatever one thinks of, of uh, his presidency and his record, uh, we did not become embroiled in military conflicts abroad. So this is consistent with the spirit of, uh, of, of President uh, Trump's stated foreign policy. Uh, and, but, but more importantly, it has broad-based uh, support around the country. So I don't think the votes would, would change markedly. Senator Todd Young, Senator Tim Kaine, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thanks, David. That was Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia and Republican Senator Todd Young of Indiana. Earlier, we heard from Representative Barbara Lee of California, a Democrat. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. More to come. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? 
The truth is, you are not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. I want to close on a personal note today about a recent loss that all of us at The New Yorker feel deeply. The cartoonist Ed Corin first started publishing in the magazine in 1962. That's before the Beatles showed up at Shea Stadium. And in his long tenure, first in New York, then in Vermont, Corin evolved into a defining voice of the magazine, what we all would hope to be, humane, progressive, funny, decent. His status-anxious subjects, whether they were portrayed as jittery human beings or wooly corn creatures, were always struggling with a way to live in the world, a world that's filled with doubt, strangeness, and absurdity. There are countless ways an artist or a satirist can approach the madness. Ed's sensibility, his way of being in the world, was to heighten the decency within him. And he brought it out in his readers, too. The cartoon editor, Emma Allen, as well as writers like Mark Singer and Calvin Trillin, were in frequent touch with Ed to the end. They all knew he was sick. Ed made no pretense about it. And yet, even as his voice weakened, you left those conversations filled with a sense not only of a life well-lived, but of someone radiating a sense of hope. The quote that I come back to often, the secret source, it's Mark Twain. The secret source of humor is sorrow. Mm. And I think that encapsulates it for me beautifully. Not so long ago, Ed spoke with Christopher Lydon of Radio Open Source at his home in Vermont. And he talked about his work for many years on the volunteer fire department in the town of Brookfield. Well, that was one way of reaching out and getting to know what this town is like and where... This huge social disparity exists, but which disappears when we have a common task. And it's kind of symbolic in a way, because we all, we don't talk politics, mercifully. We don't talk about anything other than the fire, the incident, or a wreck, which is oftentimes the case. People from other places 
speeding to the slopes through our patch of the woods here. So um, it's very, uh, illuminates me and my life as much as anything else. Does it feed your cartoons? Well, to a degree in that I see the, the huge social gulfs between people and how they live. Because one of the things you do as a member of the fire department, you interact with all kinds of people in all kinds of situations, all kinds of homes, kinds of ways of life, all kinds of reactions. There's gratitude, there's bother, there's irritation. There's all sorts of human behavior that I use in ways that I can't tell you. Picture that interacting with my love of, say, Tintoretto, or of Carpaccio, Vittoria Carpaccio. It's a wonderful, wonderful artist. And picture that with my love of George Harriman and Crazy Cat, and picture that with my love with Daumier, and on and on. The late and wonderful Ed Corrin. You can hear a longer version of that conversation at radioopensource.org. I'm David Remnick. Thanks for listening to the program today. I hope you'll join us next time. Well, here's one that I think is really germane to our situation. This one. Woman scrubbing a toilet, and there's a, a kind of visual setup, a little camera on a tripod, and she's pleased as punch with joy, and she's saying to her husband and small daughter, I've just started scrubbing the toilet, and I already have 27,000 views. (laughs) The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Brita Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, Avery Keatley, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputubwele, with guidance from Emily Botine and assistance from Harrison Keithline, Michael May, David Gable, and Meher Bhatia. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. WNYC Studios is supported by This is Uncomfortable, a podcast for Marketplace. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This is Uncomfortable, a podcast for Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.